I hope each one of you had a good day. Um, there are good days in life and there are bad days. On occasion, a good day and a bad day are the same day. I don't know if you ever had that happen to you. I remember one day in my life where it was both a good day and a bad day. It was the first day of school. First day I ever went to school in my life. That's usually a pretty big day um, in a family when a child goes to school. And I can remember some parts of that day very well. Um, going to school is special. You usually get new sneakers and um, your mom brags you up and you know she kind of hypes this as this is gonna be the biggest thing in the world that ever happened to you. My mother took me to school that day and I remember she drove me and there was a sidewalk that went up to the school building. She stopped at the end and she was kind of crying and I had no idea why. I was, you know, this was great, I'm going to school. I got out, she said I was brave and I squared my shoulders and I just marched right up and didn't even hardly wave goodbye. The end of the day, she picked me up and of course she wanted to know how the day went. It was good. Um, school was fun. We looked at some books and we had recess and had snack and I thought school was a good thing. And she asked me, she said, well, are you looking forward to tomorrow? And she said, I got the most curious look on my face. And I said, what do you mean tomorrow? And she said, well, we go back to school tomorrow. And somehow in my childish mind, I had missed or no one had told me that you go to school for more than one day. I had gone to school and I had done it and it was not bad. It was actually pretty good and now I was a schoolboy. I was done. I had finished it. And now I learn I have to go back tomorrow and do it again. I was sorely disappointed. I perhaps became disorderly and needed parental attention. It was a distressing situation. I had to go do it again tomorrow. And that's sort of how life is, and that's kind of how work is. And that's how it is between you and your money. You did it today, didn't you? I assume you worked today, at least most of you did, and you probably earned some money today, and probably directly or indirectly, you spent money today, and maybe it was a good day. Maybe it was a bad day. But it's done now, pretty much. But you do have to do it again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. And this is actually a good thing because you can look at it from either side of the coin. If it went pretty good today, if your day went nicely and you earned the money that you needed to earn and you made wise decisions today in spending money, then you have reason to be hopeful about tomorrow. You did it today, and it went okay, and you can probably do it tomorrow. That's good. 
if it did not go so well today, if you did not earn as much as you had hoped today, or if something went wrong today, or if you know you made a foolish decision today, you can look forward to tomorrow because tomorrow you get to do it again and you can learn from the mistakes that you made. What is stewardship? We looked at three things that stewardship is and it's more than these three things but I gave you three starters. Stewardship is recognizing that everything belongs to God. He claims that in scripture. He says, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. He says, I own the land, and I own everything that's on land, and I even own the people that's populating this planet. God says he owns everything. So if you're involved in this equation, you're not involved as the owner. That position is already taken. But perhaps you can be a steward and you can help take care of the things that he owns, the things that he owns and the people that are involved. Number two, money is simply a tool that God uses to build relationship with you. God says that he does not need your money. He said if he was hungry, he would not ask you. He doesn't need anything you have. But he does allow you to use his things, including his time, and the people that are under his control. He puts them in your life, and he expects you to interact with them because it's a way that he can get to know you and you can get to know him. I, that's maybe a little wrong to say it that way. He already knows everything about you. It's a way that you can get to know more about him. He will use things. He will use things as common and everyday as money and financial decisions to teach you things about him and to help you build a relationship with him. Number three, stewardship is recognizing that God actually wants you to participate. The scripture says that you are a co-laborer with God. Like two people that are working on something together, God's working on it and you're right beside him and you're helping God. Just like a child helps one of their parents. A little girl helps her mother, or a little boy helps his dad, God is allowing you to help him do things. Not because it goes better because you're helping, but because he loves you and he wants to spend time with you. And in, I think in God's mind, it is okay if it doesn't even go as good because he wanted you to participate in it. That's at least how I understand stewardship. We looked at the stewardship parables. There are at least seven principles there. Number one, there's a master-servant relationship in life. You're not going to be the master, but you can choose which master you serve, and it is a privilege to serve God. Number two, there is something called ownership in the world, and you better get used to it because you'll experience ownership um, for or against you all of your life. And when you die, you'll lose ownership. Um, even pretended ownership you have, it will all go away. Someone else will have everything that you had in this life. But there is such a thing as ownership. Uh, the third and the fourth are trust and expectations. God trusts you to handle some of his things. 
And when God trusts you or when you trust someone, you have certain expectations for how it ought to turn out. God does have expectations for you. And they relate to everything that he put into your life. He gave you life itself. He gives you health. He gives you a sound mind. He gives you some talents. There are some things that you're actually good at that other people aren't good at. God gave you this gift and he gave a different one to someone else. You will not be held accountable for someone else's gift. But you will be held accountable for your gift. For the thing that he made you good at and that you used it for him. God puts people into your life. He puts family members into your life. He puts church family into your life. He puts community people into your life, and he's expecting you to do something about that, to, to be responsible with the people that he put into your life. Trust and expectations, they always go together. There's the idea of absence. The master went away, and God does not shout down from heaven and tell you every little thing to do with your money and your stuff and your time. He leaves a lot of decisions in your hands. God has, in a sense, stepped back from your life, and he's going to allow you to make some decisions. He will actually allow you to make wrong decisions. You will likely suffer consequences, but he's not going to be the, like the overprotective parent that just intervenes all during the child's day to keep the child from ever making a mistake? No. How many mistakes has he let you make already? Probably pretty many. He, he steps back in a sense, but there is the idea of return. The master comes back, Jesus is coming back, and when he does, number seven, there will be consequences. That doesn't mean good or bad. Um, it just means there will be a judgment. There will be decisions made about what you did. God will talk to you about these things and there will either be good consequences or bad consequences. We talked about what it takes to be rich. Um, you probably have some idea you formulated in your mind based on your experiences and based on the family you lived in growing up and the community that you were raised in on what it means to be rich. You would be able in your mind to identify people who you think are rich. And if you're like me, you don't put yourself in that category. Because whether you have a little or you have a lot, it always seems to be that the rich people are the people who have more than I have. It's not me, it's the people who have more. I don't think when we look at the numbers that's actually true. Median household income in the United States is about what? The middle family in America makes how many thousand a year? Let's just say about 59,000 bucks. That's the middle family in America. Well, I told you to go home and figure out how much your family makes. I don't know if you did or not. You ought to know. You ought to know where you fit. Are you on the poor half of America or are you on the richer half of America? But 59,000 is about the dividing line. Maybe we'll just round up to 60 to make it a nice even number you can remember. Less than 60,000, you're making less per year than half of the people in America. More than 60, it's the other way. But 
if you look beyond this rich country that we live in, and you would include all the people that live in God's world, how much do you have to make to be a rich person? Now, we're only talking income here. We're not talking wealth. And remember, those are two different things. But as far as the income that you make, um, to be in the top 1% of the income earners of the world, you have to make about how much? About $32,000 a year. Um, I do not know the people in your church, just knowing people like you. I would suspect your church is full of people, families, that make more than $32,000 a year. Um, I know that in our own congregation, which is not so much different than yours, there are youth boys who make more than $32,000 a year. We are rich people if we understand where we actually fall in the resources that have been allocated on this planet. Okay, there is the difference between income and wealth. Income is what you earn. So it's what comes into your hands. But wealth is what's stuck to your fingers at the end. Because much of what comes into your hand goes through your hand and keeps on going down the supply chain. The money passes out of your possession and you pay it to someone else for something that you needed, had to have, or wanted. Wealth is what accumulates. And um, if we step back now, and let's think about Amish and Mennonite people. Those are the people that we work with in our work at Anabaptist Financial. We work in a defined segment. We don't work with the English people, okay? We work with conservative Mennonites, and we work with um, Amish people. Technically, we work with everything from um, Martindale District of Lancaster Conference, up the chain, all the way through the old order groups. So when you look at those people, are those people as a whole wealthy people, poor people, or somewhere in between? Um, I talked with our financial officer. Um, we see a lot of loan applications. We lend money, it's what we do, part of what we do. And um, any given day, they have 80 to 100 loan applications sitting on their desk. People who are borrowing money to buy houses, to buy rental houses, to buy farms, to invest in businesses, um, to build addition onto their church. Okay, so we see a lot of loan applications. The loan applications come with tax returns. So we see what these people make. What do you imagine the average Amish or Mennonite family has as an annual income? Now, the number I'm going to give you is an average across the country. We lend money in 44 different states. That's how many different states there are plain people in. There's six that there aren't, and I don't know what they are other than Hawaii is one of them. But um, across the country, so you can't just think Lancaster County, that's where the rich people are, and then the second step down is Lebanon County, and then it's everybody else. But, no, it's not actually. Shipshawana, um, Napanee, they're kind of up there too. Holmes County's not too bad. But what do you think it is? The average Amish and Mennonite family. Put a number in your head. It's not more than $45,000. 
the average Amish and Mennonite family is earning, and this is the young people averaged with the old people, the rich people averaged with the poor people. It's about $45,000. It is higher in Lancaster and Lebanon County. They say it is about $60,000 based on the loan applications that we see. Um, no, the average American is where? 59. So the average Mennonite or Amish family in Lancaster or Lebanon County is right at average for the country. The average Amish or Mennonite family across the entire country is where? Below. They are earning less than the average family. It's also an interesting observation that the average family in America is earning $59,000 based on two incomes. The father is working and the mother is working. The average Amish or Mennonite family is earning their income on one salary or one income. So there's a difference there. That's significant. Um, also of significance is that difference between income and wealth. Income is the money that you earn. Wealth is what's stuck to your fingers. And this is where the disparity exists between Amish and Mennonite people and the average people in America. The wealth sticks to Amish and Mennonite fingers. Remember, you do not have to have a high income to become wealthy. You simply need to spend less than you make and do it for a long period of time. Amish and Mennonite people have been spending less than they make in this country for about 300 years. It accumulates. It adds up in inheritances. The average Amish or Mennonite family is much wealthier than the average family in the community, even though they have lower incomes. They tend to have a lower um, amount of credit being extended to them. They do not borrow as much money when they buy a house because they had a bigger down payment. Um, perhaps they had much saved it themselves or Dottie just kind of shoved a little down the line and the young couple had money to buy a house. That doesn't happen so much in the English community. Um, the average Amish, I'm sorry, not the average Amish, this would be bad for them. The average Mennonite does not have a large car payment if they have a car payment because they're paying cash for their vehicles. That would just blow the minds of car dealers who sell to English people because they don't pay in cash. They, most of them are borrowing money for every vehicle they buy. Okay, so the income, where are we at with income? Well, you people are probably at the national average. The rest of the Amish and Mennonites are below the national average, but there is wealth in our people. Our churches are actually fairly wealthy churches. Give you a little example of that. Um, just the organization that I work with, Anabaptist Financial, we have only been in existence for 12 years. 
In 12 years, we have grown from nothing to $500 million of invested money. It has settled into a pattern, and this pattern is about seven years old. Every month, we get $4.8 million of new money. This is beyond what people are withdrawing to buy houses or for their necessary expenses. That comes out to $1.2 million a week of brand new money being invested by Amish and Mennonite people this week, next week, every week last year, every week the year before that, every week the year before that. That's a lot of money, isn't it? To be coming in, and we are one organization. There are 20 organizations like Anabaptist Financial, 21 of them, that collect money from Amish and Mennonite people and reinvest it with other Amish and Mennonite people. We are a wealthy group of people across our church groups. There is a great deal of wealth there. So it should be of interest to us what the Bible says to rich people. Because the reality is that you are the rich people. You and people like you. You and your friends and your relatives are the rich people. So when the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Timothy gives instructions to the rich people, he could have put your name on it. He could have written that letter to the church at Myerstown because the instructions that are given there are given to the rich people. Who are the rich people? Get it clear in your head. I believe um, if the truth were to be known, you are the rich people. We looked at these last evening as we wrapped up. These instructions to the rich people. Seven of them. I'm sorry, six of them and then a concluding statement. First is be not high-minded. And remember, in the Greek, the Apostle Paul wrote that twice. Be not high-minded, be not high-minded. Do not be proud, do not be proud. Whatever it is that you have, your family, you as an individual, whether you consider it to be a lot or a little, do not be proud of what you have. And it says elsewhere in scripture, God says, I am the one that gives you the ability to gain wealth. You didn't do it on your own. You didn't build that business on your own. You didn't um, um, pay off that farm on your own. You didn't deserve what you have. I gave you these things. I allowed you to have these things, and I didn't allow someone else to have the exact same thing you did. Did you know that God is not fair? There is no place in the scripture where it says that God is fair. It says that God is just. God will do what is right. But God did not give anyone the exact same set of things that he gave you. You have different numbers of children in your family. You have different incomes. 
you don't all have the same um, natural abilities. You don't all even look as nice. Some of you look nicer than others, and God decided how you were going to look. God doesn't have to be fair. God is always just. He will always do what is right. He will not hold you accountable for the money that somebody else earned. He will not hold you accountable for the time that somebody else had to spend. He, I don't think in one sense he doesn't even hold you accountable for how somebody else raises their children, but he certainly holds you accountable for how you raise your children. Now, I, I put a little, um, I, I soften that a little bit because I think in a church context, you do have some accountability back and forth. If he's being a bad dad and I go to church with him, um, you know, he's running off and doing whatever he does in the evenings and doesn't spend time with his wife and children, well, I am responsible for those children if I go to church with him, and I better be talking to that brother and helping setting him on a better path. But, but in a big sense, God holds you responsible for what he gave you. Don't be so proud. Don't put your trust in uncertain riches. Riches are uncertain. Money that comes can go. Good, a good job or a good um, employment, a good work that you have can disappear. Um, world conditions can change. Market conditions can change. Who knows who President Trump will start a trade war with next and affect your livelihood. You aren't in control of these things. Don't put your confidence in uncertain riches Put your confidence in God. You will have to deal with uncertain riches. You will have to make monetary financial decisions, but it's not where you put your feet down. It's not where you're putting your confidence. What are you people supposed to do with the things that you have? You are supposed to do good things. You are supposed to be rich in good works. And that's a list of deeds that, um, you know, in the books in heaven that they're writing according to the book of Revelation, they're writing lots of things. And hopefully every day when they wrote your page for today, it included many good, kind, benevolent deeds where you took the resources you had, your money and your time, and you used it to further God's kingdom. You are to be ready to distribute and willing to communicate. So you're a person that is very generous-hearted. You're very quick to reach out and attempt to meet needs. If you do those things, the conclusion is that you have made a good investment. You have been a wise steward of the things that God gave you. You have actually made an investment in the kingdom of heaven, and you're going to see that again someday, probably in the blessings you will enjoy in heaven when God shows you this person is here because of you. Oh, I don't even know that person. Well, maybe you don't, but now you do. This person is here because of you and because of what you did for me in this life. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're actually backing up in that chapter, and we're going to look a little bit more about what the Bible says about money 
and how people should handle the resources that they have. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to read uh, these verses that are listed here, verses 6 through 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. We're going to look at these verses in three sets. We're going to look um, first at godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. People are... Um, generally interested in getting ahead in life. They like the idea of ending up with more than I started with. Here's an instruction for you. If you are interested in ending up with more than you started with, then you will learn to be content with what God gave you. And if you can learn to be content with what God gave you, you are going to be ahead of most of the people in the world. Because most of them, regardless of what they have, little or much, they're not content with it. They are wanting more. They have a sense of dissatisfaction. So God's telling you right here one way to get ahead, one way to end life, look back and say, I had a good life. Look at what you have be it little or much, and be content with what you have. My uh, personal devotions, I just recently finished up the book of Ecclesiastes, and we believe that was written by Solomon. Three places in that book, he gives you an encouragement, enjoy what you have. Look at what you have, and enjoy the life that God gave you. It's not um, out of a sense of eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we're going to die. It's out of a sense of God gave you these things to enjoy. He put resources in your life because there are things he wants you to do with those resources. He gives you time, a life, and then he gives you resources to use for him. You ought to be content with what God gave you, and then you should put it to use and not be looking at what God gave other people. Um, the scripture says comparing ourselves among ourselves 
are not wise. It's not wise for you to come into your church house and be sitting there waiting for church to start and thinking about the guy down the bench or thinking about the lady that's sitting in front of you, how much nicer her life is than your life. Or to walk out of church visiting with your friends and then realize that they're getting into a nicer car than you're getting into. You're comparing yourselves among yourselves. You don't have what God gave them. You have what God gave you. Are you able to be content with it? The scripture says we brought nothing into the world and it's certain you can carry nothing out. Um, an estate sale is about as stark an illustration of that as it gets. You go to somebody's property and they're dead, they're gone, and all of their earthly possessions are spread out. What hasn't already been carted away by the relatives is in the front yard. And it's being auctioned off to the highest bidder. Total strangers are pawning through people's stuff and toting it away. Well, that's what happens to all your stuff at the end of life. Your family will pawn through it first and take what they want, and then it will be opened up to perfect strangers, and they will cart away the rest of it, what doesn't go in the dumpster. You don't leave life with any physical possessions other than if they're nice enough to put clothes on you before they put you in the casket. You lose it all. You didn't bring anything with you, and you're not taking anything out. Maybe that's why God says, do not be proud. Do not be proud. It says, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Um, it's probably a bigger um, principle there than just the, the words that we see in the English. That word for raiment is a broader word than clothing. It, it includes the idea of shelter. So it would include maybe like the house you live in, that you need to have a roof over your head, something to protect you from getting cold when it's cold outside and wet when it's wet outside. Um, if God has given you food to eat and you have enough to keep body and soul together and you have a place to be when it's cold and wet, then you should be content. You have enough in life. Everything else more than those is bonus. It's extra. You're getting more than God promised to give the average person. And I think most of you have more than the average. The next little set here talks about they that will be rich. It says they fall into temptation and a snare into many hurt, foolish and hurtful lust. And these things drown men in destruction and perdition. We're going to park here a little bit because we need to dissect this. Um, if you take this passage, you can do this passage in your devotions for a week and not be done. You get out some resources and you look up these different words, there is a whole lot being said in these few little verses here. They that will be rich. Um, the verbs there are in the emphatic tense. That means that um, the Apostle Paul is talking about people who are determined to be rich. They want to be rich. It does not say the people who are rich 
fall into temptation and a snare. It says the people who want to be rich. So I think this room is full of rich people. I do not know if there is anyone in this room who wants to be rich. That they desire, money is what they covet. Money and things, and I want a nicer house, and I really want a nicer vehicle, and I want more money, and I'm going to spend a lot of my time and energy, my mental focus on getting more because I want more. The, I think some of the most endangered people in our congregations are the people who want to be rich. If you're sitting here tonight and you want to be rich, the best thing you can do if you own a business is to close it down without selling it and walk away. If you are farming and it's going really well and um, you want to be rich, it's gripped you, the best thing you can do is give your farm to Anabaptist Foundation, we'll sell it and give the money to charity, and you go work at Turkey Hill. Because you are going to go to hell. You are headed for danger. And how do I know that? How can I say it that strong that if you want to be rich, you're heading for hell? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul said and take it piece by piece. It says these people fall into two types of things. Um, it says temptation and a snare. Okay, what is temptation? I think you understand temptation pretty good. Temptation is spiritual danger. Temptation alone is not sin. You probably had lots of temptations today that... If you're trying to live for the Lord, the temptation came and you pushed it away. Well, you didn't sin because the devil or, or you know, one of his helpers brought a temptation your way. But people who want to be rich, you know what they just fell into? They have more temptations than the average person. They're bringing extra temptation into their life. How many of you think you have enough temptation in your life? You can barely handle or struggle to handle the amount of temptations you have now. You don't need to increase the temptations you have. The people who want to be rich fall into temptation. They also fall into a snare, that is the word for a trap. Okay? Do people who end up in traps, did they plan to be in traps? Did they plan for this thing to ruin them? No, nobody plans to ruin their life. Nobody plans to ruin their eternal destiny. They make very poor spiritual decisions and they end up in a trap and maybe someday they, they wake up and realize they're in the trap, but now they're in it. If you want to be rich, you're going to have more temptations in life and you're going to end up in a trap. These temptations and these traps do something to you. They bring you into foolish and hurtful lust. Lust are strong desires. It says foolish lust and hurtful lust. People who want to be rich will end up 
doing stupid things. And maybe they don't end up doing stupid things on financial decisions, but they end up making stupid spiritual decisions. There are many men, even in our church circles, who successfully built a business or paid off a farm and lost their boys. They are failures as men. They are successful businessmen who lost their boys. They built a business and destroyed their children. People who want to be rich are in danger of doing stupid things. Some of them regret that later. They look back later and they wish they could do it again. Little piece of news for those of you who are young. You do not get to do it again. You do not get to have little children again 15 years from now if you screw it up. You only get to have little children one time, one period in your life. And if you messed it up, you messed it up. If you spent too much time working, you blew it. If you were too greedy, if you were covetous, if money was too important to you, you blew it. And you don't get to do it again the next day and start from scratch. You will have consequences that you would regret having. It also says that these are hurtful lusts. They were not innocent in their outcomes. The end results were bad. It says these things drowned men. There are many different ways that people die. I have not drowned it in my life. But I am told that drowning is not a pleasant death. People who want to be rich, they're going to go down, but they're actually going to go down in a way that's like drowning. That's not a pleasant description, is it? You don't want that for yourself. You don't want that for your family. It drowns them in two things. The words the Apostle Paul uses in the English are destruction and perdition. So you don't drown in one thing, you drown in two things. There is a difference between destruction and perdition. Destruction is a word that would be used to describe present ruin. Right now, it's bad. The person who wants to be rich, you think they've got the good life? They don't have the good life according to God. It's bad for them now. They have destruction, present ruin in their life. But they also have perdition. The word perdition is a word for eternal punishment. If you want to be rich, you will have a bad life now, and then you will pay for it for eternity. Doesn't paint a very good picture for people who want to be rich. I hope you are warned off of wanting to be rich. Remember, this does not say the people who are rich, because some people are rich. You are rich. It is a different thing to want to be rich. 
the last section of um, verses we want to look at. It says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Some have coveted after this. These people have erred, and they have pierced themselves through, and we are to flee and to follow. Let's look, go back and look at these in order. The love of money. Um, I'm certain you have heard it before. It does not say money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool. It's like a hammer or a mixer or a tractor. It is something that money and stuff is a tool that is used and it can be used for good or it can be used for ill. But it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, that does not mean that every evil springs from money. Um, it would probably in the English be better interpreted all sorts of evil. People have ended up committing all sorts of sins because they loved money. Um, that's where it's um, deceptive, this love of money. Um, you end up doing things that are actually stupid things. If you were a thinking person, you wouldn't have done this in your life, but you loved money and you did things that a rational person would have known better than to do, you ended up committing sins you would not have seen yourself committing. Oh, you know, I might be natured this way and that way, but I would never do that. Well, if you love money, you just might end up doing that because it has a powerful um, influence in people's lives. It says some have coveted after this. What does it actually mean to covet? I mean, we know that's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? One of the baseline um, principles for building your life, you should not covet. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to covet? Um, this is not a dictionary definition. Um, I, when I think about coveting, I think about wanting things that God has chosen not to give me. The thing itself may not be a bad thing, but it's obvious in my life God has cho chosen not to give me this thing. At least right, not at this point in my life anyway. If I set my heart on that thing that it's obvious God has chosen not to give me, I think that's what coveting is. A strong desire, an insistent desire that I want something that God is not choosing to give to me. People who covet, people who love money, they have erred from the faith. They have left the path. They are going away from true Christianity. It says that they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows, and the Greek word there is very interesting. You can look this up for yourself. It says pierce themselves through. It's a word they would have used if you were stuck all the way through. It's one thing if I would take a knife and stick it in you. It's another thing if I take a big enough knife that I can stick it in you and it comes out the other side. That's the word here. The people who love money, the people um, who have erred from the truth in this regard, they have pierced themselves all the way through with what? 
many sorrows. The rich people are happy, right? The rich people, they've got stuff and it brings pleasure into their life. Maybe only through our eyes and maybe you're not actually seeing behind the curtains. The scripture says the people who love money, they are stuck all the way through with many sad things in their lives. So what are you supposed to do? Two instructions, flee and follow. Run away from it. I have a little niece, um, she's the, um, one of the younger of our nieces, and she helps my wife with things, and one day she came out of the house and there happened to be a snake right there. And she was just walking along and all of a sudden this snake was right there. Well, her and snakes are not um, compatible creatures. So she fled. Um, I thought it was rather humorous, um, the way that she fled. Um, like she disappeared, thin air, out of there. The scripture says, flee. So if you are a person and you sense, you know what? The Apostle Paul is talking about me. I love money. I want to be rich. Here's your warning. Run. Flee. But you just don't flee madly into the darkness. It says, follow. God doesn't just tell you what to run away from. God is smart enough, good enough, wise enough that he also tells you where to run. I want you to run away from this and you need a direction to go. So if you are one of these people that it's in you, you know it's down in there to love money and to want to be rich, you need to go home and read this passage and you can find out where you're supposed to be going. You're supposed to be on your feet and your feet are supposed to be going like this as you run away as fast as you can from this problem you have, but God in his goodness tells you where to go. And it's all laid out right there. You follow after and then he gives you some instructions. And you can pick those up and use them as you need them. I want to move on and go back to this word steward a little bit here. This is a dictionary definition of the word steward. A steward is, and they give five different examples, illustrations of what a steward might be. A steward is someone who manages another's property or financial affairs. A steward is anyone who administers something as the agent of another person. You're doing it for someone else. A steward is a person who has the charge of the household of another, providing for the table, the direction of the servants, etc. A ship's officer who keeps the stores and arranges for the table, meaning the provision for the people who are on the ship, or um, more broadly, any attendant on a ship who waits for passengers. These are actually pretty good definitions. And if we understand what a steward means with these dictionary definitions, it fits into really a spiritual context. If you see yourself as a steward of God, God owns everything, and I'm allowed to manage some of his things, you understand you are doing it 
and, and what you're managing belongs to somebody else. So the house that you live in is actually not your house, it is God's house. The, um, the vehicle that you drive is actually God's vehicle. The money that's in the checkbook is actually, all of it is God's money, not just the tithe money or the giving money, all of it is God's money. The stuff belongs to somebody else if you are a steward. And number two, you're doing it as someone else's agent. So yes, it belongs to somebody else, but you are responsible for it. It was given to you. The money in your checkbook was given to you. It wasn't given to me. I'm not responsible for the money in your checkbook. You are responsible. You are the agent. You are the one that God trusted to take care of this amount of time, these pile of talents and giftings in life, and this amount of money. You are God's agent if you're a steward. You have charge of the household of another. So you've got responsibilities that involve other people yet. So like you think about the deacon in your church. I don't even know who your deacon is. Whose money does the deacon handle? Church's money. Whose money does um, somebody at work handle? The boss's money? Whose money do you handle? God's money? But you've got a set of responsibilities that you're supposed to take care of. The deacon has the church's money because he's supposed to help the poor and the widows and the young couples who have big baby expenses, maybe. He has something he's supposed to do. He has people he's supposed to help with this amount of money. Maybe the same way if you're a project manager um, in a business. You have employees who are underneath you. You're the foreman or, or the supervisor. The employee's time actually belongs to the owner, but you're in charge of it. You tell this guy to do that and this guy to go do that. You're managing it for someone else. That idea of management. You are a manager. Did you know that? Maybe you think you're lowly, way down on the totem pole. Nope, you're still a manager of whatever it is God put under your control. These last ideas here, um, the ship's officer. On a ship, there is a steward. Um, whether it's a passenger ship or a freighter or an oil tanker, there is someone who is charged as the ship's steward. They have the authority to use the shipping company's money to buy supplies. They order it, they make sure it gets paid for. When it gets delivered to the ship, they say, um, put that stuff in the freezer, that stuff goes in the refrigerator, um, the toilet paper goes back there. They distribute the supplies in the ship, and then they are also responsible to make sure that those supplies last for the whole trip. Now catch that part. How would it be to be on a ship and maybe you're going to Europe? So I don't know how long it takes to get to Europe on a ship, but it takes several days, doesn't it? And the steward ordered two rolls of toilet paper. Okay? Bad job. Or he was responsible for ordering the food to get us all there, and he put on a big, lavish spread, breakfast, lunch, and supper, and we ran out with three days to go. No, 
there is someone there who's rationing it out because he's responsible that it lasts until the end. And we don't run out before we get replenished. That's what you are if you're God's steward. There's a certain amount of resources under your control. There are people that those resources are supposed to take care of, and you're not supposed to run out before payday. So that means that that's why mom is terrible mean. She says the children can only have three Oreos a day because we're only buying one pack of Oreos a week and they have to last the whole week and there's this many of us in the family and we're going to have some Oreos on Saturday too so you can only have three Oreos on Monday. Somebody has to be the manager. Somebody has to be the steward and the steward in the broad sense He's the one who makes sure the passengers get everything they need. A steward is taking care of other people. And this is where we're going to pick up tomorrow night. Probably the biggest part of stewardship that you have in your life doesn't have anything to do with money or stuff. It's the stewardship you are entrusted with over the people who are in your life. Your children, your family members, and your brothers and sisters at church. You're responsible for these people. You have some responsibility in this area, and that's what we're going to look at tomorrow evening, Lord willing. Hope you have a good evening.